Good morning. I realized after preparing my sermon this weekend, uh, it reminded me of something uh, when I used to, uh, my first pastor in Kentucky, a uh, small, small uh, rural church, and I, I also served tables at a country club, and one of the older ladies found out that I was a preacher, she wanted to hear one of my sermons, so I was like, oh, well, we put it on, you know, Facebook, so... I gave her my phone so she could watch it, and I was like, I'll come back in 10 minutes and tell me what you think. Just be gentle. And I came back, <laughs> and she was like, uh, it, very good, very good. You know, I just have one critique. And I was like, oh boy. I was like, what is that? She was like, it's too much Bible. And I was like, praise God. And she, and she was like, no, no, that's not a compliment. I'm like, yes, 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 it is. And uh, she was like, no, she was like, I need something, you know, when I go into the grocery mart or some sort of application or something like that. And, and uh, yeah, I didn't know what to say at that point. I was like, I don't know. Don't, don't steal. Pay for your stuff. Be kind and share the gospel with your clerk. Uh, but I realized this sermon doesn't have that type of application she's probably looking to, uh, was probably looking for. Um, I think there is a great point of application in this passage that we'll see. Um, and one of them is how to... Uh, find joy and comfort in the midst of our sorrow and suffering, which we'll get into more. Uh, our text for today, we're continuing on in Philippians 1, 12 through 18, C. The message of the cross advances. Me. Open up Philippians 1, starting in verse 12. The Apostle Paul says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else, that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord for my imprisonment, and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, God, I, I pray as we open up the text today, Lord, uh, that our, the, the application of your word would, would be to fix our eyes on you, Lord, the one who reveals your word to us through divine inspiration, Lord. God, that you would uh, give us knowledge and wisdom, that you would call us to yourself, Lord, that you would speak to us, Lord, through your word this morning, God. Help us to understand your word. Help us to understand who you are, Lord. And God, if there be those who are going through some sort of suffering or trial or even persecution, Lord, at work or in any place or knows those, or knows those who are going through persecution right now throughout the world, Lord, God, we, we, we pray for them, and we, and we pray that you would give them joy and comfort and peace in the midst of their suffering, God. Or 
you are a God who is able to do that. And we ask you to do that this morning. Amen. So just a summary, Paul is writing to comfort the Philippians about his current situation here in Philippians 1, 12 through 18. He's in prison once again, and it's because he's a minister of the gospel, or as Paul puts it, because he is in Christ. Yet he tells the Philippians he rejoices in his current circumstances because even though he is in prison, his imprisonment has led to the advancement of the gospel. In multiple ways. Paul says, my imprisonment has spread throughout the entire imperial guard. And, and ever, even more so, the, the reason for my incarceration has, has spread throughout the entire guard. They all know the reason I am in prison is because I preach Christ crucified. And therefore, the message of the cross advances. Secondly, because of my imprisonment, many brothers in Christ, have actually gained confidence in preaching the word more boldly. And therefore, putting me in prison has actually had the reverse effect of what they intended. And rather than invoking fear in our fellow preachers, it's provided them strength and boldness. And therefore, the message of the cross advances. And finally, yes, he says, some of the preachers are preaching Christ out of selfishness. <laughs> they're, they're disingenuous, and they're actually seeking to bring me harm. Yet, I rejoice. Because even if they preach with false motives, Christ crucified is still being proclaimed, and therefore, the message of the cross advances. Now, if you remember in the introductory sermon, or just as, as I reiterate from that, I said one of the themes of Philippians, the letter to the Philippians, is joyful suffering. And if I had to summarize the letter in one sentence, it would be focusing on the person and work of Christ will build unity within the church. It'll create joy in the Christian, and it'll also create joy with those who are suffering. I think that's the one we focus on today, that, that Paul focuses on the person and work of Christ, and it creates joy in the midst of his suffering and his sorrows, in his circumstances. We'll discover in this passage that today that the reason Paul can rejoice in any and every situation such as this is because he's learned one truth about God and how God works which is necessary to find joy in the midst of sorrow and that is our creator his creator and our redeemer is in control of all things no matter if the circumstances appear bad or good they all serve God's purposes including our suffering we'll see that more in Philippians God is in control. Paul knows that. No matter, if, no matter if he's in prison or not, God is in control. and God is good. And all things that happen have purpose, including his suffering. It seems that he, he understands where the psalmist says, our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. 
And if we, as Cornerstone, as the church, can, can, can embrace that, can come to that realization that God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases and he is in control of all things, I think we too can find joy in the midst of our suffering. First, we only have two points today. We minimize our suffering by magnifying God's sovereignty. Big word. God is in control. Verses 12 through 13. Paul says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. This is a long point. I need to take a sip. Nothing more encouraging than when the preacher says, this is a long point. You're like, oh man, this, how long is this going to be? Sorry. Okay. We minimize our suffering by magnifying God's sovereignty. Uh, so in order to turn our sorrow into joy, we must observe how Paul found joy in the midst of his circumstances. Because if you're anything like me, you're pretty much nothing like Paul. When you, when you find yourself in unimaginable or, or undesirable circumstances, you typically ask God or cry out to him, God, why is this happening or why did this have to happen? Sometimes I think to myself, God, are you, are you upset with me? You, you must be because if you understood <laughs> What this was doing to me, the anxiety that it was causing within me, the suffering, the tears that it was causing within me, you wouldn't have allowed this to happen. And the, the psalmist cries out the exact same thing in Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me and agony in my mind every day? Lord, how long? If I'm truly honest, if I think if we're all truly honest, we can admit that sometimes life really stinks. It did for Paul right here. In, in prison, whether he's in Rome or Ephesus, wherever prison he's in, his circumstance is not fun. It's not enjoyable. Like, don't, don't forget, Paul isn't writing to the Philippians from a country club, right? He, he's writing from prison. Think about who Paul is, one of the most faithful Christians this side of the resurrection has ever known, and probably ever will, has been arrested again for preaching the gospel. Why? Why would God allow such a faithful servant of Christ to be arrested for doing the Lord's work? That's what he's doing. Preaching Christ crucified is the Lord's work. And the answer, therein lies the answer, that the imprisonment of Paul is the Lord's work. In other words, God decreed, God determined, God decided Paul's captivity that Paul would be put in prison so that the gospel of Jesus Christ would 
advance. And Paul knew this because Paul knew who God was. And Paul had already experienced God working in his life like this before. This isn't the first time he's been put in prison for preaching the gospel. He was actually put in Philippi for preaching the gospel. We'll go back. We, we went over this, the, I think, the first or second sermon. Acts 16, after Paul and them arrive there, he's preaching the gospel. They're put into prison, in prison. It says about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. <laughs> there, hey, if it, there's application. If you're ever in prison, start singing How Great Thou Art. There you go. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up. The guard woke up. And when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to K-I-L-L himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're still here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. If Paul had never been arrested and thrown into jail with Silas, the guard, the jailer, and his whole household may have never heard the gospel. They may never have repented and believed in Jesus Christ, our Lord. But they did. <laughs> they did. So, so Paul's now in prison again for preaching the gospel. And he knows that whatever happens to him, has a purpose, and God uses it. I want to share something about God's sovereignty and His providence this morning. Because if you, if we can wrap our mind around it, if we can, if we can proceed to live our lives in a way that embraces this truth about God's sovereignty and providence, we're going to experience, we're, we'll still, we're still going to suffer. But in that suffering, we will experience comfort, joy, and peace. In the midst of gr our greatest suffering. And that's that one truth about God's sovereignty and His providence is Nothing happens in our lives that has not been determined by God. Nothing. He has determined it all, and it all has purpose. There are no accidents. There are no coincidences. And there is not one who can overthrow or undermine the counsel of the Almighty. Not one. While it is normal to wish that we didn't have to suffer, in the moments of our greatest discomfort, if we, can if we can remind ourselves or remind one another that this too has been determined by God, it will minimize our deepest sorrows. 
if you can't find joy in suffering for any other reason, at least you can rejoice that God is in control. And what has come to pass has only happened because He has chosen it to happen. And we can't forget that He is a good God. Goodness is one of His attributes. God is love. God is holy. God is all-powerful. God is all-wise. God is also all-good. Nothing He does is bad, evil, or sinful. C.S. Lewis captures this truth about God in the Chronicles of Narnia, if you've ever read it. Uh, uh, it's, it's my favorite quote in any fictional book. When, if, uh, if you're familiar with the story, the, the four children who cross into Narnia through the wardrobe, they, uh, they, they meet the beavers, and one of the beavers uh, starts to tell them about the mysterious lion who's been gone for a while, named Oslin. And he's returning soon. And the youngest girl says to him, says to the beaver, oh, I should dare to meet a lion. Is he safe? And the beaver says, is he safe? No, he's not safe. He's a lion, but he's good. That is how C.S. Lewis portrayed God. God is not safe, but he's good. He's good. Now, if you can't remember that illustration, then just memorize Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He works all things for good. <laughs> him working our suffering for good doesn't feel good. That's why it's called suffering. It's not the way we would have done it. And I, and I hate to just Bible thump us or Jesus juke us or give this Jesus juke us or give the Sunday school answer. But when Moses says in Deuteronomy, God's thoughts are higher than ours and his ways are higher, that there's a reason the Bible says that because we have to come to the conclusion that things happen we don't understand, but God has determined them for good and his purpose. And we remind ourselves, the same apostle, Paul, who wrote that verse to the Roman church is the same apostle who is now saying to the Philippians, God is using my imprisonment for his glory, for his purposes. And because of that, I can rejoice. <laughs> that's just sound. That's just good theology. I, I for one, I want to be there in Paul's theology. I want to know and believe that God is bringing forth His good and perfect will in every sufferable moment that I experience. I want a faith that believes beyond a shadow of a doubt that God works all things for good according to His purpose. And I want to believe that He's not a God who makes mistakes. And remember that while He's not safe, He is good. That's the type of theology we have to acquire if we're going to find true comfort in the midst of our suffering, trials, or even persecution. I 
I learned this next point in, in marriage. I'm still learning it. Sorry, I have not arrived. We don't need to minimize our suffering. And we don't need to minimize someone else's suffering as if it's not actually happening. Or if they should just pretend that it's not happening. As if it doesn't exist. It does exist. Take Paul for example. I mean, of, of course Paul would have rather been somewhere else than prison. But his understanding of God's providence leads him to write to the Philippians and say, don't worry about my imprisonment because my chains, these chains, are actually God's intentions to set the gospel free. These chains advance the message of the cross. The application from this passage, it's not to minimize our suffering. It's not to minimize someone else's suffering. It's not to minimize suffering at all. Instead, the application or our goal, like Paul's, is to magnify the sovereignty of God. Because by magnifying the sovereignty of God, what happened? Paul's suffering was minimized. And so shall ours be. So in other words, if you want to find joy in your sorrows then do as Paul is doing here and focus your thoughts on the infinite wisdom and power of God who is in control of all things. And that, it may not, it's not just going to take you out of the sorrow, but it will minimize it. And God is able to create joy. God is able to stir up affections in your heart and mind for Him, even in the worst circumstances imaginable. I've seen it, and you probably have seen it too. There's one thing you notice about missionaries or people who have uh, been in prison, persecuted, beaten for their faith, or even had a loved one martyred. They always seem to have experienced this glory of God that none of us have ever got to experience. And they always want to be back in that moment because that's when they felt God nearest. And and I'm so human and sinful. I'm like, that sounds great. I don't want to be there. I, I know I should want to be there. But no matter if we want to be there or not, the Lord is going to take us there. Maybe not persecution. But He is going to put things in our path that aren't desirable. It's probably a good time as any to quote William uh, Cowper's poem. God moves in mysterious ways. Because if any Christian, if you ever have time to read him, read, uh, read, it's I don't know if it's an encouraging read, but he was so discouraged and depressed. If there's anyone that's ever been in the deep pits of depression, it was him. And ironically, the substance of his poem, God's Sovereignty and Providence, is responsible for providing strength and encouragement to millions of Christians who have suffered. He wrote, God moves... In a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. 
He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. If you can arrive there, that's a good place to be. Because the suffering, the trials, the persecution, even that we see with Paul in our own life, God intends for good. In verses 14, Paul says, Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord for my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word, the word of God, fearlessly. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel, appointed to suffer, for the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Verses 14 through 18, they just continue to reveal more of the mysterious ways God is working to accomplish His will. That the, his will, that the message, that, that his son, Jesus Christ, and the de- his death and resurrection and ascension to heaven where he now reigns would continue and spread without the entire, throughout the entire earth. And not only has Paul's capture led to the gospel being spread throughout the guard, but other preachers are, are now gaining more confidence in Christ. And they're becoming more bolder preachers than they were before. And Paul's circumstances continue to demonstrate what man thinks will prevent the will of God is actually what serves as the means to fulfill God's plans. Augustine summarized this doctrine perfectly in one sense. One sentence, sorry. That, that, that is, he summarized regarding man's sinful intentions, actually completing the will of God. He said, The works of the Lord are great because in a unspeakably strange and wonderful, even what is done in opposition to God's will does not defeat God's will. The works of the Lord are great because in a way unspeakably strange and wonderful, even what is done in opposition to God's will does not defeat God's will. My wife asked me how many illustrations I had or what illustrations I was using in the sermon. And I, and I said, well, well, I think she was asking if I was using any family illustrations, especially when she's not here. 
But I said, I don't know that I'm real well, except to C.S. Lewis, I don't think I'm using any, but I'm quoting a whole lot of people and, and reading from great poems. I mean, it's, you know, Augustine, 4th century A.D., Cowper, what, 17th, 18th century, Paul, 1st century, have all talked about God's sovereignty and His providence, and yet, in 2022, it's still a mystery to us how it works, but, but it's a mystery how God uses sin in, 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 for good or man's intentions for evil. God uses it for good. It, it, that's painted across the pages of Scripture. We, we see this truly come to fruition in the life of Joseph and his brothers. The end of Genesis tells us that Joseph was God's chosen instrument to preserve the lives of many. And, and, and that sounds great at surface level. But if we read Genesis and the story of Joseph, we see that God's providence led Joseph through some of the hardest trials to the point where one could only conclude that God had abandoned him. And Joseph's story began with his jealous brothers plotting to murder him. And then they just settled for selling him into slavery. And, and, and it seems like maybe the tides have turned for Joseph when he eventually ends up in Potiphar's home. But then what happens? Misfortune strikes again when Potiphar's wife lies about Joseph, and Joseph ends up in prison. Joseph, who, who lives a blameless life before God, ends up in prison. It's amazing when you look through the pages of Scripture how many of God's chosen instruments wind up in prison. And even when you look at the history of missions, how many missionaries wind up in prison for what? Proclaiming Christ crucified. Sorry, that was a side note. If you recall Joseph's imprisonment, it eventually leads to Joseph getting out and ruling under Pharaoh. Once he received revelation from God that there was going to be a famine and how to handle it, Pharaoh put him in charge. And it was Joseph's appointment to leadership which God used to spare many lives from starvation, including his brother Judah, who the lineage of the Christ would come through. That's a whole other theological point. We don't have time for that this morning. But, but, but this one moment where Joseph is going to, to spare, to save lives from starvation and hunger, and God is preserving his people, that one moment in time, everything that led up from Joseph's life led to that moment. His brothers wanting to kill him, his brothers putting him in the hole in slavery, him going to Potiphar's wife, Potiphar's wife lying, him ended up in prison, all had a purpose. As eventually the news that Egypt has food spreads from Egypt all the way into Canaan where Joseph's family lives, his brothers, and Jacob, their father. Now you know the rest of the story. I hope you know the rest of the story. His brothers come down to Egypt where they find out their brother Joseph is still alive and he welcomes them into their home. Cliff notes. And then after their father Jacob dies, they come to Joseph, terrified he's going to get retribution for what they did many years ago. 
And what's his response? Do you remember his response? Don't fear, brothers. I won't harm you. You have nothing to fear. Why not? And what's he say? Because what you intended for evil, God intended for good. good theology. Joseph is one of my favorite theologians. <laughs> and from that one line, to understand that, to embrace that, creates a, a, a comfort and a joy in the hardest times that, that are only supernatural and only knowing who God is and how God works is able to provide. An unbeliever cannot experience that true comfort and joy. And like Paul, sorry, like Joseph, Paul, the Apostle Paul, viewed his circumstances the exact same way Joseph did. We see Rome thought they could prevent the gospel from being proclaimed if they arrested Paul. But what actually happens is the gospel spreads throughout the entire imperial guard. Rome also thought they could silence the gospel from spreading if they just silenced Paul. But what actually happens is God raises up more faithful and bolder preachers. They multiply. And finally, we see some of these men who are trying to cause harm to Paul Intend, harm, intend to harm Paul by their preaching. But what does Paul say? Yeah, they try to harm me. What does it matter? Christ crucified is still proclaimed. Yeah, and, and therefore Paul can rejoice because what man intended for harm, God intended for good. What Rome intended to silence the gospel, God used to proclaim the gospel. What Rome used to, to scare Christians is actually what God used to build strength and encourage them in boldness. This is why we don't need to be surprised when we see God act in this way. What's, because what seems like the most unlikely circumstance for the gospel to flourish can be the exact condition that God has chosen. One of my favorite quotes, I think it's my last quote, by Tertullian, who said, the blood of the martyr is the seed of the church. Which means when Christians are persecuted for their faith, more people always seem to get saved. God uses the blood of the martyr, <laughs> to just sprout up the church and believers in Christ Jesus. Now we, we don't have time to walk all of that out, but, but just, just consider the growth of the church in that manner for a moment. Because the, there's countless hours spent at meetings, in classes, uh, people getting degrees, money being spent on people trying to figure out how to grow a church. And I'm not condemning those who do or do it in that manner. But what we've witnessed throughout history and throughout Scripture is that great revivals are brought forth by great persecutions. So we should expect that the God of heaven's 
would save the least likely, like us, by using the most unlikely set of circumstances. That's what he did to the jailer back in Acts 16. He puts his faithful servant Paul in prison. (laughs) They're singing hymns. Who knows what they were singing? The jailer gets saved, him and his household. Paul, you're going to go to prison, but I'm going to save many because of it. Unlikely circumstances for unlikely people. Some people don't like God's sovereignty and God's providence. I probably should have spearheaded that at the beginning of the sermon rather than at the conclusion. It's a tough doctrine. It's hard to understand. It's hard to embrace. But, but there's, one, there's one ultimate reality that I don't think can be denied where God uses evil for good. And that's at the foot of the cross. Because while evil men reviled Jesus and his disciples rejected Jesus, while Judas turned on Jesus and his own people and religious leaders shouted, Crucify Jesus! While they spit on Jesus and crowned him with a crown of thorns and tore Jesus' clothes and speared Jesus' side, and while they nailed his hands and feet to a cross, While all of them intended harm toward Jesus, the message of the cross says that God intended it for good. And the Scriptures say that God intended it for our good. Unlikely sinners who were undeserving of God's grace. And because Jesus rose from the grave, The message of the cross advances. The message that the Son of God came to the earth through the virgin birth to be a human like us in order that one day He would be crucified in our place. The innocent taking the punishment for sinners such as you and me. The sinless receiving death so that the sinful would receive reward. That reward is life. (laughs) That is the message that God has preserved throughout the ages. No matter what man, no matter what Rome, no matter what this world has done to prevent that message, you cannot prevent a message that is no longer in the grave. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that whom you are, how you work, what you've done, how you accomplish your will does not always align with ours, doesn't always look like we want it to look like, but you do it for good and it has purpose. And I I pray that no matter where we are today with your sovereignty or providence, God, that we can go to the foot of the cross. We can go to Isaiah 53 that says it was your will to crush the Messiah. And he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, Lord. 
God, your plan to kill the innocent son, Lord, through men's evil actions turned out for the salvation of many, God. And Lord, we thank you for that, and you are worthy to be praised. In Jesus' name, amen.